0: Hey Eddie, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: Man, it's it's great to catch up with you. I think the last time we saw each other was at Go to Market in Nashville.
1: Yep, that was it. That was fun.
0: That was awesome. Are you planning to go next year? I heard it's in New Orleans.
1: Definitely. Uh, I also went to. Uh, I don't know if I told you, but I moved from New York to Denver recently, and I went to uh, one of the Denver chapter events recently. And I'm still on the list for New York, and want to fly back there pretty soon to do one of those. I'm pretty all in on Pavilion, like. Uh, I don't know if you if you want to be promoting pavilion on your podcast but i'm a huge fan
0: uh no i don't mind um or we'll, we'll see if uh my sponsor's mine <laughs> <laughs> uh by the way um yeah it's very cool i didn't know that you moved to denver uh are you like in winter wonderland at the
1: moment uh yeah we went to went to aspen for a few days uh, over christmas break and uh got a new snowboard and uh the wife has learned to ski and uh life is good
0: oh man i had no idea you ripped the slopes that's really cool uh, we'll yeah. have to go out to, um, go hit the slopes sometime. I like to snowboard as well, by the way, your background is amazing. Well, You look like you're like going into some sort of vortex. Like w- what's this background that you have here?
1: Thanks. Uh, it is, uh, the, well, not a three-point lighting system. I've got two lights in front of me. I have my windows closed because if I didn't, the sunlight would be just like smashing my face and you wouldn't be able to see me. So I've got one light on each side. Uh, and then I have a background light and, uh, so I had hired somebody to just paint the wall blue. So it's just like a straight midnight blue. And I could geek out on this for like an hour because uh, you know, I like when I do something, I want it to I want it to be good. So if we're going to do video podcasts, I want it to look good. And uh, I spent a lot of time on YouTube trying to learn how studio lighting works.
0: That's amazing. So for those who don't know, I'm joined by Eddie Reynolds, the CEO and founder of Union Square Consulting, uh, a dear friend of mine, someone that I've uh, chatted it up with uh, quite a bit. And by the way, I think you you and Steven Stopher are competing for the best backgrounds for guests on the pod.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, as much as I love like the cool, like audio visual stuff and the fancy microphones, I think it's all about the content. And, uh, yeah, like I also praise people that just like, don't care about this stuff. And they just focus on just putting out amazing content because that's what really matters.
0: So by the way, you're, um, how'd you get into, um, entrepreneurship because you're union square consulting, but I heard you started a business as a preteen.
1: Yeah. Um, so I think like my dream in life was always to start my own company and I don't remember at what age that started, but, um, when I was, Ooh, I don't know. I think like I think it was 13 or 14. I was up late one night watching this infomercial and there was this company that basically said, Hey, like we have like these thousands of products and we can provide you with catalogs and drop shipping and all the things that you want to start your own business. And all you got to do is like, give us like $300 to like join our club or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do that. So I did that. And then I tried to distribute it by building my own website. And I had this, this vision that I was going to be this like digital nomad entrepreneur. And this was what, 25, 26 years ago at this point, um, just as the internet was starting to like really, really take off in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, yeah, that was my, my dream to be like a, a dot-com entrepreneur. And um, I started that business and I spent a lot of time trying to learn how to like build websites and code uh, fairly unsuccessfully. Um, and the business didn't really go too far. I managed to break even, sell a few things to like friends and family and did some door-to-door sales. Uh, And then I started college and I majored in entrepreneurship Um, and I always wanted to start my own business and entrepreneurship isn't a very marketable degree. So I picked up marketing as well and tried to learn marketing so I could figure out how to like, you know, launch a new business and do a new website and market it. Um, And hopefully this isn't too long of a story, but I became reasonably disenfranchised with marketing uh, as a, as a study very quickly. I was in these classes and I'm thinking like all this stuff is going to change by the time I'm actually practicing this. And I can go read like a blog post and learn how to do this stuff probably better, especially cause they were teaching us like, here's how Pepsi markets. And I'm like, I don't know how this is relevant for what I want to do in life. So I dropped that and I picked up finance. Um, and anyway, like really long story short, like I ended up spending 10 years in finance, but I always had this dream of uh, starting another business.
0: So for those who follow you on LinkedIn, I could tell you that some of Eddie's posts are some of the best posts on revenue operations. Because it puts you in the perspective of a go-to-market leader thinking through, you know, what is the return on investment for building up an SDR team or building up a sales team or adopting RevOps. And I think a lot of that comes down to your previous finance background. Um also you you also tend to bring up your time over at Salesforce. I'm curious about, you know, when you were at Salesforce, you know, what did you do there and what did you learn?
1: Yeah. Well, let me start with like the first bit of of, of finance. So I, as I said, I was in college and I was absolutely fascinated with finance. I'm a very analytical, mathematical person. I was like a math nerd as a kid as well, um, and so I started off going into banking and then ultimately uh, went into private equity, raising capital for these funds. And so for 10 years, a lot of my lens was, in addition to like trying to go out and actually get meetings and open and close deals, in doing that, like I needed to be an expert in, in you know, lending and investing and spent a lot of time learning about that over 10 years. And I'm always looking at that through the lens of how does a company actually make money? How do you generate revenue? How does it go down to the bottom line? And when I was in banking, I literally went through tax returns and financial statements and loan applications for businesses, I worked with a lot of small businesses. And then when I was in private equity and venture capital, it was higher level looking at how the actual fund managers that I met with saw the world and what they were looking for in these businesses. And so when I joined Salesforce, as you can imagine, like most of my colleagues had a very different background. Most of them came from B2B, B2B SaaS sales. And it was a difficult adoption for me, especially adopting to a very high velocity sale. But when I went in there, like I had a lot of success with CFOs as you might imagine. And I spent a lot of my time trying to get into the C-suite and talk to them about how do you guys actually plan to grow this business? And ironically, Salesforce did not put me on the finance team. That's where I wanted to be. Instead, they put me in uh, what they call geo, which meant that my best customers were uh, VC backed growth stage B2B SaaS companies. And so for three years, I'm trying to meet with the CFO, COO, VP of sales, CEO, et cetera, at these companies. And inevitably, like I've never been much of a technologist. I'm asking like, how do you guys plan to triple your revenue? How do you plan to run this company profitably? What are your investors asking you for? And that always comes back to how do we actually build a go-to-market operation? And that's what I became really passionate about at Salesforce. And it's also something I saw firsthand because, as you can imagine, Salesforce's own internal revenue operation is pretty tight like they know what they're doing. And so I would be sitting there as a sales rep, being coached by my manager, doing forecasting calls, experiencing like what it's like to be in the belly of the beast, and then going to my customers, some of whom did it even better than us, many of whom weren't even remotely close, and you're comparing notes all day, every day. And I'm sitting there in front of these executive teams, literally whiteboarding out what their go-to-market strategy is and poking holes in it. And that was just my favorite part of the job. Um, I thought it was absolutely fascinating to sit in front of an executive team and help them like map out their vision to go to market and then poke holes in the places where there were gaps in in their planning and in their thinking.
0: So I do a lot of what you just said as a revenue operator and never did I imagine that, you know, a sales rep would be going in and instead of selling features to a solution, you're offering solutions in context to their actual goals, which is to grow you know, enterprise value for a business. Um, We just, we're just crossing the end of the year and entering the new year. And quite frankly, many revenue operations teams are stuck or planning on annual planning, and they're focusing on how they're going to grow their business next year. How much headcount do we need? How do we organize the teams? Which business units do we invest in? Aligning with the product roadmap and the product team to understand, you know, what is, what is going to be on on the menu for next year as we go into uh, 2024. And so, I can see a lot of commonality between what you did and what you achieved as a sales rep over at Salesforce with an internal revenue operator. I'm curious with the clients that you're working with, you know, what are some of the common themes and challenges that they're facing entering the new year?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's probably important to put into context that most of our clients do not have an experienced VP of revenue operations in seat. Um, We're not working with like a lot of companies that have like over hundred million in revenue. Um, If they do, they probably should have that person. Though there's a few folks that don't and they're coming to us for help. Um, But by and large, like I think we're seeing a lot of problems that you might imagine companies have when they haven't yet like built up a true RevOps team and got them to hit their stride. So I wanna put that into context and not say that these are all companies, these are the companies that we're meeting with. And we start off a lot of times, even just in our sales process, of doing a workshop and bringing in our VP of RevOps strategy to dig apart their go to market. And I'm always looking for this like aha moment where we come and say, Hey, like we figured out there's this special thing that you've never thought of and it's going to double your revenue if you just do this thing. And after doing this again and again and again, we're never seeing that. We're seeing these companies at, 1 million in revenue, 10 million in revenue, 100 million in revenue that still have some of the most basic fundamental aspects of their go-to-market, undefined, undocumented, broken. We see companies that like literally do not have a sales process established, documented, and translated into their CRM and reports. Literally, you go in and you're like, let's just run a pipeline report and look at it. Are, should these deals be in the pipeline? And oftentimes, the answer is no. And we go from there we have um we have a methodology we call the revenue efficiency pyramid and it starts where i just mentioned at the sales process and we look at basic things like do you know your icp and your buyer personas do you have your funnel process defined do you have a process defined for retention and growth and oftentimes they don't um once we get this foundation built it's a lot easier to go from there and for me i think what we're seeing in terms of trends is a more and more CROs are thinking this way. It's less and less about, we just need to hire a bunch of hero salespeople, make a bunch of calls and close deals. It's more about building a repeatable process, which is crazy because I feel like 10 years ago when I was working at Salesforce, we were preaching that. But I think that this downturn in the market has forced people to really think hard about, should we just go throw money at marketing to generate MQLs and SDRs to book meetings, or should we be more thoughtful about our approach?
0: I think that makes sense. I think one of the things that I'm challenged, challenging my go-to-market leaders in thinking through is with the end of ZERP, the zero interest rate policy, capital is no longer cheap. Selling parts of your business is now more expensive, the equity side of the house. And so the only way to really generate cash flow is to do so from your operations. And so you need to generate growth, but also make sure that you're bringing in the right type of growth on a cost envelope that makes sense. And if you look at the last 10 years, a lot of businesses have been over invested in several different functions, whether or not you brought in the right hiring profile or enabled them correctly once they were in the door. And so I've written a couple of articles or essays recently where I'm challenging, you know, the convention of what we thought was true the last 10 years. Just bring in a boatload of SDRs at a specific ratio. They're going to augment your pipeline. Your closes are not going to be full cycle. They're going to take, they're going to be in a closing role. And then it doesn't matter what you bring in because you can. You can then work on uh, the expansion playbook once they toss over the fence to the account managers, and I think that whole game has changed because of the co- uh, because of the cost of capital that's now out there, and so a chief revenue officer has to rely and work and partner with uh, their head of revenue operations, whether it's a BP title or not. They need that revenue operator to be in a spot where they're not focused on, you know, head head down in the sand, focused on tactical things, but they're also building up to handle, you know, the the strategy. Um, also taking a look at, you know, the upcoming opportunities for the business. And those are some of the things that I'm spending a lot more of my time on and less so on systems these days.
1: Well, it's crazy you mentioned that because like I said, I've been in sales for over 20 years. I and mean, if I go back to starting my first business, uh, you know, it's 26 years at this point. Um, I've never been an SDR. I've never had an SDR other than Salesforce, where we had like inbound leads that SDRs would pass over, which was a very small portion of our pipeline. We didn't have outbound SDRs on the team that I was on and with rare exception, I've also pretty much never had a job where I was new business only, even at Salesforce, I was new and existing business. And so for me, like this concept of like the full cycle rep, I mean, keep in mind, like I've spent half of my career, like outside of B2B SaaS, like in finance, like the idea of an SDR is just insane to people. Um, in most, most of the types of businesses that I worked in, um, It's interesting to see people talking about coming back full circle, because like in my mind, sales reps should have the ability to prospect. And if you are taking your customer from prospect through to deal closure, and then you're renewing and expanding that customer, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have other resources to help. Um, Facilitating like a a renewal without any expansion is not exactly the best use of time for uh, an AE. But it really is amazing to me that we've turned B2B SaaS go to market into this like assembly line where so many people on that assembly line don't understand the other aspects of the process. Like I was trying to explain this to my wife yesterday who doesn't work in the industry. And I'm like, you've got these folks that like start as an SDR. They do it for a year, never get particularly good at it, get promoted to become an AE. And then they lose all their prospecting skills. And then they're 30 years old. And like, they've never really run a full sales cycle well for any length of time.
0: That's really interesting. I think the concept of becoming generalists specialists, I think you can see maybe some of the same analogies in sports where someone's a pitcher. Instead of becoming a pitcher that pitches through, you know, six or seven innings, they're just a, what's called a starter. They're just there for the first inning. And they do that well for a year. Then they graduate to, you know, a starter or mid-reliever. Uh, and they may not have necessarily the innings or the experience to get through the full game. And I think through, you know, the assembly line, there's a cost to all of this. So if you have an AE, uh, an SDR who's making say 100K OTE on target earning, and they're split across three different reps, let's say that's a three to one ratio, that means each rep has to share the load of generating an additional 33K plus the company and costs associated uh, with that, it's overhead benefits, the tech, but those AEs have to close more business. So the trade-off is we can offer you more support in the form of an SDR, but you as the ae now have to carry a higher quota right you have to you have to compensate for you have to basically pay for your entourage and i find that i find that a very jarring um you know message to deliver to a cro And the cro over the last couple of years has been basically saying but that's how the game is played let's bring in the sdrs because that's going to augment our pipeline it helps us accelerate you know grabbing market share faster
1: and i don't have a problem with that right so like at the end of the day If it works, it works. And I think it works better. The smaller deals that you're working now, granted, when I was at Salesforce, we had a lot of SDRs. Uh, I wasn't on the enterprise team, but I talked to them that were, you know, calling into enterprise accounts. Now, like, let's be clear. If you're calling on general electric as the SDR, you're probably not calling the CEO of general electric. Like they have a lot of tiny little businesses and divisions that are basically SMB customers. Um, But with that said, I don't have any problem with an SDR filling the pipeline and you get an AE to the point where all they have time to do is work that pipeline if it's real pipeline. But the trap that I see, especially in like small B2B SaaS startups and scale ups, is that that's not what's happening what's happening is, is their reps have like a pipeline full of crappy deals. They don't want to prospect or really know how to. So they're just waiting for the SDRs to continue to fill the pipeline. And they spend all their time chasing these deals that they shouldn't, which does two things. A, it's wasting valuable selling time that could be spent prospecting and filling the pipeline. And B, I think sometimes it actually even reduces your close rate because when you don't have the ability to walk away from somebody, you let them walk all over you and you lose the ability to push back and and say hey mr or Ms. prospect if you want to achieve this outcome this is what you need to do and if you can't do that in the most polite and tactful way possible like i'm going to walk and that is what i saw the most successful sales reps i worked with at salesforce do all day every day everybody i talked to that was a top performer that was the first thing they told me to do is learn how to do that because when you can't do that you let your prospects walk all over you and control a process that they have no experience managing and inevitably it ends up with a bad outcome for you and for them.
0: So Eddie, we're coming into the last segment of the show. I've been changing my last question up for my most recent guest. So I one thing, you know, your experience in revenue operations and partnering with RevOps leaders, what's one moment of transformation or change or impact that you've had either professionally or personally?
1: It's so hard to say because like I'm in year eight now of this business and it's not like there's been like one pivotal moment. But I think for me, like with New Year's uh, two days ago, the theme for me continues to be consistency. I am realizing in my own business and my personal life that anything that we do where we are just simply consistent and work on it every single day and just try to improve that 1%, that is where all the results come from. And I know it's just overly simplistic, but like I think, especially in RevOps, everybody's looking for some kind of a hack or a trick. Whereas, and I posted this today, if you just focus on one thing and just focus on making it great and do whatever it takes every single day, you will get there. But I don't know of like some quick hack or trick to circumvent that.
0: I always say uh, overnight success in the making for 40 years. So yeah, uh, I don't think there's any hack that's out there except 1% improvement compounded daily every single day for the rest of your life. So Eddie, for those who are listening, I'm curious, how can folks connect with you?
1: Uh, Well, obviously I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, We have our website, unionsquareconsulting.com. If anybody's interested, you have the ability to book a call with me or one of our VPs to talk about ways we could help you with RevOps. Uh, You can sign up for our newsletter that we publish every week. Um, And uh, I'll probably be commenting on uh, your posts, Jeff, on LinkedIn on a frequent basis as I do.
0: Awesome, Eddie. As always, appreciate you coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.